Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Behind the plan to take over Death Row Records. It has been my personal pleasure to work on a daily basis with a ship night. I always felt that David Kenner was... Um, for David Kenner. David Kenner was the shadow who was always at death row. He was the one who was making deals. David Kenner was running it from the start. He was always there. He's a very, very thorough lawyer. He really knows his business, but I wouldn't say that he's a righteous person. When I left death row, David Kenner took my job at an astronomical salary. From a business standpoint, he was, uh, he was ruthless. David Kenner was so valuable to death row because he was able to keep these artists out of jail. That could be used either way. Exactly. Michael Collin claims that the proof of how much power David Kenner wielded at death row records was how he was able to get Snoop Dogg off on a murder rap. One of the first things that happens is Snoop is on trial for murder. In this murder, the evidence against Snoop is sitting over at Pacific Division at LAPD. And you have David Kenner at the trial who's making a big deal about this evidence. And LAPD comes back and says, um, they can't find the evidence because it is missing. Wow. That, that's pretty explosive. All of a sudden, Snoop is acquitted. One of the things that puzzles me is how Kenner was able to help Snoop beat that murder rap. Yet, Suge Knight ends up with a nine-year prison sentence over a parole violation. Why wasn't his attorney, Kenner, able to help him beat that? Was it because it was to his advantage not to? I want you to keep this in mind. That incident at the MGM... That altercation, there was no police report filed on that. Not one. Orlando Anderson wasn't taken downtown. The only person who suffered because of that MGM footage was Suge Knight. Suge Knight went to jail for a probation violation. If you cannot separate the man from the money, Separate the money from the man. Why do you think whoever it was unloaded on you guys like that? You gotta realize something. You got two powerful 
black man. And anytime you're doing a lot of good, people want to bring the good down always. It's puzzling to me, why wasn't his attorney, Kenner, able to help him beat that parole violation that would land Suge Knight behind bars for nine years? In order to learn more about the relationship between Kenner and Suge, we've reached out to the mysterious Michael Harris, a.k.a. Harry O who was partners with Suge and Kenner in the formation of Death Row Records. This is Michael Harris, a man drug agents describe as a major cocaine trafficker. Michael Harris, better known as Harry O, was probably the most formidable and certainly the most uh, charismatic gangster, black gangster anyway, that L.A. has ever seen. Even in prison, he was able to reach out and cast Denzel Washington in his first significant acting role. So the guy had connections. The label started with uh, Dr. Dre, who was going to do his own thing. And uh, with a lot of help from Suge Knight and uh, Harry O and a number of people, and we got it all together. The feds wanted to know if Harry O gave Suge the money to start Death Row Records, because if it was, then it was you know, part of a drug enterprise. And was Death Row started with drug money? Talk to Suge about that. It took a while, but we were able to get an interview with Harry O from his cell at Lum Oak Prison. This is uh, Mr. Harris. Good morning, sir. Hey, good morning. Were you business associates with Suge Knight and David Kenner in the formation of Death Row Records? They worked in conjunction with me, actually as employees. David Kenner was actually my business attorney who helped facilitate the uh, incorporation of the business. So y'all had this arrangement from prison? From prison. At some point, did Suge and David Kenner try to eliminate you from the equation? In hindsight, it was, uh, it was pretty slick what they did in short. Unbeknownst to me, David Kenner suspended the companies that I owned and transferred the artists to a new form death row without my permission. A lot of people underestimate David's uh, part in all of this. The company was valued at a half a billion dollars. And how much money would that have been for you? At least $125 million. So it was about money. Were you uh, were you satisfied with uh, David Kenner being your lawyer? Because that's the death, uh, former death row lawyer. Yeah. So I, at the time, like so at the time, he was the only option that I had. So he was my guy's lawyer in my criminal case, right? right. So I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, he, at, at bare minimum, he can read and understand the contract. But you know, outside of lawyer, lawyers, can only do but so much. They can they can get you an opportunity. They can read your contract. They can even get you an opportunity. They can read a contract and sign it, but. That was the nature of me and Dave's relationship. So, yes, yeah, so you have uh, your lawyer also being your agent, and he's looking over your contract, so you would satisfy with, you have, like, a, gangster, a gangster's lawyer, lawyer, like, like you just so, stayed in that room. Yeah, until I was fooled. Well, listen to me, I was fooled, right? And just, just for full transparency, they, they put it out already. So the, the guy who I'm with, he's, uh, you know, he's on trial for extortion and racketeering, right? 
they're pushing him as this Israeli mobster. His lawyer is David Kenner. This is my best friend out in California. This is who I'm with for two and a half years. So in, in some weird psycho way, uh, I'm thinking it's cool to be standing next to him and, and just talking about this gangster trial that he's going through, this federal case. I'm really thinking it's cool. And right. then all of the people around him, and I'm thinking like this is uh, like some um, some cool deal. And then, you know, David Kenner, you know what I'm saying? I'm getting fascinated from Dave Kenner telling me Tupac stories. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. So, uh, and just talking about death row. And so I'm, I'm just impressionable. You know, and you don't realize that you're a lost kid because you're supposed to be preparing for a football season. But I'm getting fascinated by a guy who's uh, supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, an organized crime. And then I'm getting fascinated by the lawyer who's representing Represent, me. Right. And so then in my mind, <laughs> I think I'm still a gangster. A gangster. Yeah, it goes so. back to gangster again. Were you, uh, any... Why do you think I told you 50 ruined my life? I yes, blame it on 50. Blame it on 50. Context of white supremacy. Blame it on 50 Cent. Curtis Jackson. Whole downfall of civilization began with wankster. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, July 29, 2021. So I have been told the worst summer ever worst year ever continues not sure if I will survive to the end but we did make it to the end of Randall Sullivan's Labyrinth Wiz which is an accomplishment in and of itself last session on Mr. Sullivan's book in fact we only have one audio segment I guess maybe that's a plus things will wrap up early so we can all go frolic enjoy the uh, remaining sun if it's available hang out at the beach do something safe constructive but we'll do our one session the audio segments that we heard at the beginning the first segment was from discretion TV uh, channel on YouTube uh, and they were just asking some basic questions uh, as well as just discussing uh, the powerful David Kenner, his role in Death Row, and hey, you can you can help get uh, Mr. Snoop Dogg acquitted on this murder charge, and then the powerful who we've heard about all book, like everybody, with how Mob Deep said, uh, everybody is shook because of Suge Knight, and then you get hemmed up on a probation violation, like. Come on, man. Dave Kenner should have been able to snap a finger and, you know, whew, that's gone. Unless maybe he didn't want that to happen. The second audio segment, that was from <clears throat> Maurice Claret. I don't know if we have people here, hopefully not, who watched the abomination of football. But Maurice Claret was a big college football star. Uh, he helped the Ohio State uh, Buckeyes win the NCAA National Championship not that long back. He was slated to be a first-round draft pick, make a lot millions and millions uh, of dollars uh, in the NFL and get brain damage too. Probably already has that. Uh, but there was this huge scandal right after they won the NCAA Championship uh, his freshman year, I believe. Uh, and then they had all these sanctions and everything. He did this incorrect or he took some money or whatever. And so he doesn't play anymore. He's going to try to go directly to the NFL. But they have rules and regulations about that. White people don't let's just let you go play in the NFL. 
Uh, so it was a big, you know, scandal. I think they have an ESPN documentary about all of this. But you hear Maurice Claret, who said, and I thought it was so important because he said, hey, I was really young. I just told you, I believe they won the national championship while he was at Ohio State as a freshman. So he's like 18, 19 years old. Uh, and then all this happens. He's basically like 20 years old, as he said. Really, really young. A child, basically. His brain computer is not developed, and he's a victim of white supremacy. And you've got this powerful David Kenner who's hanging out with the, what you heard with powerful Israeli mobsters, probably someone classified as white. I suspect it wasn't Sammy Davis Jr., but I could be in error. He's hanging out with powerful or representing Israeli criminal mobsters and all the rest of it. And then he can come and, and say some cool Tupac stories, Biggie stories, Suge Knight death row stories. Like, what? You have no chance. You heard. You heard uh, Maurice Claret being honest. Say, hey, I was young. I didn't understand. I was still learning. I was impressionable. This powerful white man, he can tell me all these stories. Probably another powerful white man. He's going through this big criminal trial, and I'm all impressed by all of this wow I'm thinking I'm like them and I'm in cahoots with them and yeah don't be fooled we will go ahead and wrap up I just thought it was really important to get some emphasis on David Kenner's name since his name has been sorely lacking as we have gone down the home stretch of labyrinth but we will wrap it all up and give our final thoughts context of white supremacy Randall Sullivan's book of lies city of lies labyrinth final audio segment chapter 13 by the autumn of 2000 more than a hundred felony cases had been overturned on the basis of ray perez's statements none of his claims however had been tested in a court of law now one finally would be prosecutors made what seemed an odd choice for the first criminal case brought to trial on the basis of perez's story Four Rampart officers accused by Perez of framing 18th Street gang member Alan Lobos on a gun possession charge. What made the prosecution's case so curious was that Lobos was a convicted killer serving a life sentence for first-degree murder. When the trial of those accused of framing the gang member on the weapons charge finally began, however, the decision made more sense. Three of the four officers were white while ten of the twelve jurors who would pass judgment on them were minorities. The legal drama soon would be overwhelmed by claims made outside the courtroom by a former girlfriend of Perez's named Sonia Flores, who told the FBI that Rafael and David Mack had shot to death a drug dealer named Chino and an older woman who appeared to be his mother. Mack and Perez wrapped the victims' bodies in garbage bags sealed with duct tape, Flores said, then drove to Tijuana, Mexico, and buried them in a ravine where the corpses of those killed in the border city's drug wars were dumped on an almost daily basis. Flores told a story that was remarkably detailed. She met Rafael Perez in 1991 at the Pan American nightclub near the Rampart Division Station, Flores said. He had come into the club, Perez said, to check on underage drinkers. Flores, 14 at the time, clearly qualified. Her age hadn't kept the officer from asking for a telephone number, however, said Flores, and soon after they began meeting for sexual liaisons at an apartment on Marathon Street that Perez shared with two other LAPD officers, David Mack and Sammy Martin. When she became pregnant with Perez's child, Flores went on, 
he took her to a clinic near the corner of Vermont Avenue and 4th Street where she aborted the fetus. Sometime during either late 1994 or early 1995, Flores said, she was picked up at her home in Echo Park by Mac and Perez, who were driving Sammy Martin's black BMW. They drove her back to the Marathon Street apartment, then took her along when they made a delivery of cocaine to a man named Chino. Before leaving the Marathon Street apartment, Flores said, Perez and Mac put on their SWAT gear, black nylon jackets over full suits of body armor. She didn't find this unusual, Flores explained, because she had seen them wear their SWAT uniforms on other occasions when making cocaine deliveries. She was a bit concerned that Rafael had armed himself with three handguns, though, Flores said, and became frightened during the drive to Chino's apartment building on Bellevue Avenue because Rafael began to instruct her in what to do if there was shooting. All three of them went upstairs to an apartment with a four-digit number on the door, Flores said. Mac, who was carrying the cocaine in a brown bag, knocked. A Hispanic woman in her mid-fifties answered and let the three of them in. While she and the older woman sat in the living room, Flores said, Rafael, David Mac, and Chino adjourned to a back bedroom. She had met Chino a couple of times before at the Guadalinda nightclub in Hollywood, Flores explained, and believed his name was Juan Cardoza. He was a small-time drug dealer who worked the Guadalinda on a regular basis. The three men had been out of sight for only a few minutes, Flores said, when she heard their voices raised in argument. Only a moment later, Max stepped out of the bedroom and called for the older woman. The argument in the back bedroom continued, however, until Rafael pushed Chino into the living room and used one of his pistols to force the man face down on the floor. Where's the money? Rafael demanded, she recalled. When Chino said he didn't have the money, Ray placed his foot on the back of the man's neck and fired a single shot into Chino's shoulder. The older woman immediately came running out of the back bedroom and threw herself on top of Chino, Flores said, but Rafael simply shoved her aside, pulled Chino's head back, and fired another gunshot into his forehead. She felt the blood splatter her legs, Flores said, then watched in shock as Mac grabbed the back of the older woman's blouse and shot her in the head. She was in hysterics at this point, Flores said, and Rafael had to carry her back to the BMW, which was parked in an alley next to the building. While Rafael drove to the Marathon Street apartment, Mac sat with her in the back seat and tried to get her to drink something from a bottle. When she refused, Flores said, Mac poured some of what was in the bottle onto a rag and covered her face with it until she lost consciousness. She awoke in the bathroom of the Marathon Street apartment, fully clothed, but missing her tennis shoes and socks. Rafael was asleep in the bedroom and Mac was asleep on the couch. She remembered what had happened when she saw the blood on her shorts, Flores said, then immediately took them off and threw them into the trash. Rafael woke up a moment later and warned her that if she told anyone about what had happened, she would be prosecuted as an accomplice. Also, because Chino was connected to the Mexican mafia, if it ever came out that she was involved in his death, not only she, but her brother and his children as well, would be murdered. When she asked what had happened to the bodies, Rafael told her not to be concerned. She was fairly certain that he and Mac had dumped the corpses in Tijuana, Flores said, because Rafael had done that at least once before. They were headed south in his Ford Explorer, she recalled, when Rafael casually mentioned that there was a body in the back of the vehicle. She didn't believe him until he told her to look at the purse under her seat. She did, and inside she found the idea of a young Hispanic woman. Just some puta from the El Panel, Rafael called her. 
The El Panel was a strip club at Florence and Western where Perez and Mac went on Wednesday nights, she explained, to enjoy the lap dancers. When they got to Tijuana that day, Flores said, they drove to a beauty salon owned by a friend whose brother owned another salon in Huntington Beach. To be sure that there really was a body in the back of the Explorer, Flores said, she unsnapped the cargo cover, pulled back a corner, and saw an obviously dead young woman lying on a plastic sheet. She stayed at the beauty salon, Flores said, while Raphael and salon owner René drove off in the Explorer. When they returned, the body was gone. When she asked him to show her what he had done with the corpse, Flores said, Raphael, without hesitation, drove her to a field at the bottom of an embankment behind a row of houses and showed her exactly where he had dumped the woman's body. She and Raphael broke up soon after this, Flores told the FBI, and she did not see him again until February of 1996 when she was at the McDonald's restaurant on Union Avenue. She was talking to an 18th Streeter named Stymie, Flores said, who was on the lookout for a rival gang member he believed had killed one of his relatives in a drive-by shooting. She tried to talk him out of gunning for the man, Flores said, but Stymie refused to listen, so she called Raphael at the Rampart Crash Station. By the time Perez arrived, however, Stymie had shot and fatally wounded the man he was waiting for. Raphael drove her to the Rampart Station on Union Avenue, Flores recalled, and showed her photographs of Temple Street gang members. She picked out the picture of a man who had been sitting near her when the shooting occurred, but Raphael said to ignore him and insisted that Flores point out two other men she did not recognize. She complied, but at the same time decided she would not identify the two men under oath. Raphael drove her to court on the morning of her trial, Flores recalled. On the way, he showed her another photograph of the accused men and said he would be sitting at the council table while she testified. After she said on the witness stand that she could not identify the suspects, Flores said, Raphael became furious with her. Yet the two continued their relationship for some months afterward. During this period, she learned of several other serious crimes in which Raphael was involved with his roommates at the Marathon Street apartment, Flores said. One was the shooting of a man who had threatened to expose Raphael for extorting members of the Temple Street gang. Raphael and Sammy Martin, while off-duty, had tracked the man down and killed him on the street. Martin drove the car while Perez pulled the trigger, Flores said. Raphael also had participated with Mac in a bank robbery, Flores said, along with two women whose names she didn't know, although she had been told that one of them worked at the bank. She had been present in the Marathon Street apartment while it was planned, Flores said. Raphael actually had asked her to join them in the robbery, even offering to teach her to shoot a gun. She declined, but Raphael gave her $300 anyway, after the robbery, Flores said. When David Mack was arrested, however, Raphael became very concerned about what she knew, the young woman went on, offering her a sum of money and a house if she would leave the Los Angeles area. Her life was in danger, he told her, warning repeatedly that she would be killed if she talked to the police. She refused his offer of a house and money, Flores said, because she was convinced Raphael was setting her up to take the fall. She did stay in contact with him by phone, the young woman added, even after his arrest. But Raphael stopped calling in December of 1999. On the morning of the first Rampart trial in Los Angeles, Mexican authorities were using a backhoe to excavate the ravine where Flores said the bodies of Chino and his mother had been buried. As courtroom observers studied a photograph of the site that ran under a banner headline at the top of the Los Angeles Times metro section, 
prosecutors rose to inform the judge that they had refused to give Rafael Perez a grant of immunity in the ongoing murder investigation and probably would not call him as a witness. Attorneys for the four accused officers could barely contain their glee and accused the district attorney's office of making a deal with the devil that had backfired on them. A bombshell, Erwin Chemerinsky called the prosecution's announcement. It's hard for me to imagine the prosecution succeeding without Perez's testimony. The venerable defense attorney Barry Tarlow agreed. It blows them out of the water, he told the Times. It's probably the end of the Rampart cases, and it's a sad day for the criminal justice system. The DA's office would not abandon its case, however. The ensuing trial was a bizarre but tedious affair, conducted by a judge who had written a letter of commendation praising Perez for his professional testimony during a kidnapping trial in her courtroom and driven by a prosecution team whose victim was a convicted murderer. Witnesses with names like Wicked, Rascal, Diablo, and Termite attempted to explain to the jury such subtleties as the difference between being a tiny whiny drinker and a tiny loco doper, while one police officer after another claimed not even to remember the incident in question. In their final arguments, defense attorneys ridiculed the prosecution's case as an embarrassment to the citizens of Los Angeles. What the lawyers did not recognize, though, was that they were talking to jurors every bit as inclined to believe career criminals as to put their trust in career cops. Gil Garcetti, who one week earlier had been voted out of office by a nearly two-to-one margin, losing to a former underling, Steve Cooley, who called the Perez plea bargain the worst of the century, received what seemed consoling news on November 15th, when the jury delivered guilty verdicts against three of the four accused officers. The prosecution's victory celebration would be short-lived, however. Within a few days, a white alternate juror told investigators that she had heard the panel's Hispanic foreman say on the first day of the trial that the defendants were guilty. At almost the same time, five jurors signed affidavits stating that they had not been able to agree on whether the three officers told the truth when they claimed to have been struck by the gangbanger's car in the alley where the confrontation took place but had found them guilty after agreeing that the cops did not suffer great bodily injury. Problem was, the cops never made that claim, despite a report saying they had that was provided to the jury by the prosecution. Three days before Christmas, the convictions were voided and a mistrial declared. Almost immediately, Sonia Flores confessed that she had made up the story about the murders of Chino and his mother. She had little choice, given that the FBI had located the alleged murder victims alive and well. She had fabricated her tale, Flores said, to punish Perez for dumping her after she became pregnant by him and wanted him to spend the rest of his life in prison. The feds, however, were troubled by a feeling that some of what Flores had told them was true. A number of things had checked out, such as her description of the black BMW driven by Sammy Martin and her recollection of the shooting outside the McDonald's on Union Avenue. Mac and Perez were fascinated by lap dancers, and Flores's description of the bank robbery had been spot on. The young woman also was able to lead the FBI to a garbage-strewn ravine in Tijuana, just like the one she had described. But two days of digging by the Mexican authorities turned up no human remains. What to make of Flores was a subject of some debate at the U.S. courthouse in downtown Los Angeles. One FBI agent suspected that Rafael Perez had persuaded the young woman to tell the story, then renounce it, so that he would not be forced to testify in court. 
When the FBI permitted Flores to plead guilty to a single count of making false statements to federal authorities, they insisted that she agree to at least two polygraph examinations intended to determine if anyone else had helped concoct her story. The results of those tests were never made public. By this point, the truth had become a fragile fossil, immured in sediments of deceit, cynicism, and sanctimony. Those few fragments that could be pried loose were too contaminated to trust, and the cost of clarification, apparently, was more than anyone wanted to pay. That spring of 2001, word around the criminal courts building in downtown Los Angeles was that the state would not proceed with any more prosecutions related to the Rampart investigation, leaving further action to the federal government. A total of five LAPD officers had been fired by then, and another 40 disciplined, but cop after cop were beating the charges against them at departmental trial boards. The only real witness is Perez, Russell Poole observed, and Perez becomes less believable all the time. Yet they're paying these gangbangers millions of dollars on the basis of what the guy says. Has anything like this ever happened before? It had not. By March of 2001, the last possible opportunity to separate simple truth from the complex of lies that surrounded the Los Angeles police corruption scandal seemed to be the trial that might result from the lawsuit filed against the LAPD by Russell Poole. The federal judge who would preside over the case was admittedly impressed by what he had seen of Poole's documentation, while those who reviewed the entire file predicted that the case would explode on the city if it ever came to court. Poole's attorneys won virtually every early pre-trial hearing, including one that resulted in the judge's order that Chief Parks and other senior LAPD officers submit to videotaped depositions. He steeled himself, Poole said, with the knowledge that he could never do more damage to the police department than had already been inflicted. The LAPD by now was an almost entirely demoralized organization. The department employed nearly a thousand fewer officers than it had when Parks took over as chief, and a recent Police Protective League poll suggested that as many as two-thirds of current officers wanted to quit their jobs. Even with the substantially reduced requirements that had been implemented in the name of diversity, the department was unable to fill its police academy classes. Dissension within the LAPD had advanced to the point that the vice president of the PPL stated publicly that the entire Rampart scandal was the result of Chief Parks' determination to protect black officers, an assertion that would have been unthinkable one year earlier. We've come to the point where there are two standards in the LAPD now, said former Deputy Chief Steve Downing, one for white officers and another for minorities. You can't possibly maintain discipline under those conditions. The PPL's leadership had been warning for months that closing the LAPD's crash units would leave gangbangers feeling they've been given a green light to go back and terrorize people. Such dire predictions were dismissed as police propaganda at first, but Los Angeles had seen a huge increase in violent crime during the past year, with murders up more than 25% after eight years of steady decline, and gang members blamed for most of them. The key witness in one of the alleged crash frame-ups was arrested for rape, and in July 2000, after making a deal to collect $231,000 from the city of Los Angeles for the beating inflicted on him by Brian Hewitt, Ismael Jimenez was accused by federal prosecutors of conspiring to commit two murders during the previous year. The investigation that Russell Poole had begun back in March of 1997, meanwhile, 
the one that Rafael Perez almost single-handedly turned into the Rampart scandal, appeared to have subsided into terminal limbo. The murders of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls remained unsolved, and Chief Parks continued to insist that they had nothing to do with the crimes by cops that had ravaged his department. The racial politics of this city have become so ridiculous that the police department and the district attorney's office don't want to solve the Biggie Smalls case, asserted Downing. They're afraid Johnny Cochran will defend whoever is charged and will have another O.J. situation. Suge Knight, meanwhile, was about to be transferred to a federal prison in Oregon where he was scheduled for release in early August, meaning he would be back in his office at Death Row Records before the summer was over. The racketeering probe of Knight and David Kenner by the U.S. Justice Department recently had been described as inactive in a story written by Chuck Phillips for the Los Angeles Times, but the Biggie Smalls case refused to die. On June 6, 2000, LAPD detectives Greg Grant and Brian Tyndall, along with Lieutenant Emmanuel Hernandez, made the trip north to the Cornell Correctional Facility where Kevin Hackey was incarcerated on a weapons charge. The three officers were most interested in Hackey's claim that he knew what David Mack had done with the missing $700,000 from the Bank of America robbery in November of 1997. What Hackey first told the LAPD contingent, however, was that he had seen Mack and Ray Perez together at a number of death row records functions that were reserved for close friends of the owner or individuals considered to be in the owner's inner circle, and that Kevin Gaines had attended similar events. Hackey provided numerous places and dates where he had seen Mack and or Perez with Suge Knight, beginning with the Black Image Awards show at the Beverly Hills Hotel in 1995. He was told then that Mack and Knight had grown up together in Compton, Hackey recalled. Mack had been without Perez at that event, but the two were together with Suge and his entourage at a Mike Tyson fight in Las Vegas during May or June of 1996, Hackey said. He saw Mack with Suge only a short time later at the MTV-sponsored Toss It Up event, where Tupac Shakur made a guest appearance, Hackey went on. Hackey first met Kevin Gaines at Tupac's California Love video shoot, he said. The story that Suge Knight did not welcome Gaines' presence at death row events was a fiction, Hackey added. Gaines was at a second Tupac video shoot only a couple of weeks later, at a mansion in either Santa Ana or Anaheim Hills, and Suge had been present as well. Gaines also was at the death row Christmas party in December of 1995, and only a few days later was with the death row contingent that distributed frozen turkeys in Compton for the Brotherhood Crusade. He saw Gaines at several other death row events, Hackey said, the last being an awards ceremony in April of 1996. Hackey also told the LAPD detectives that in February of 1999, shortly after his arrest on the weapons charges, he had been locked up at the Century Sheriff's Station in Linwood for seven days with Ray Perez. The two of them never discussed the bank robbery, Hackey said, but Perez did say he still employed a street dealer named Cadillac Willie who was selling kilos of cocaine for him. Hackey also told the LAPD trio that he had important information about the murder trial of Snoop Dogg. In January or February of 1996, Hackey said, Reggie Wright Jr. told him, during a conversation at the Death Row Studios in Tarzana, that the case against Snoop was destroyed when important evidence disappeared from the West Los Angeles police station. Wright seemed to imply that one of his friends on the LAPD had taken care of this for him. Hackey recalled. 
I don't know what motivated Tyndall and Grant to go interview Hackey in prison, Poole said. Hackey already had told us enough in our first interview with him that if we had just followed up on it all, we probably would have gotten to the bottom of all this. And if we'd had a picture of Perez at that first interview, we'd probably have ended up interviewing him, too. And who knows what that would have led to. The story Hackey gave the LAPD paled in comparison, though, to the one that a Los Angeles jail inmate named Mark Hilland told the FBI early in 2001. Hilland was a paralegal who had a history of practicing law without a license, often in the service of clients engaged in criminal enterprise. He claimed to have become involved with Ray Perez, David Mack, and two other LAPD officers back in 1992, when he met them at a strip club called Fritz's in Bellflower. Eventually, the four hired him to launder the fortune they were earning as drug dealers, Hilland claimed, by secretly investing the money in real estate. According to Hilland, the main tactic of the four was to place the property in the names of the Hispanic gang members they arrested in the Rampart Division. They'd wait until one of these guys went to prison, explained an investigator who had spent much of the past six months unearthing the paper trail left by these transactions, then put the property in his name, rent it out, default on their mortgage payments, wait for the property to be repossessed, then buy it at auction for half of what it cost a year earlier. Behind a screen of phony transactions, he had discovered dozens of real estate deals that linked Hilland to Perez, Mack, and at least two other LAPD officers, said the investigator, who would become convinced that this part of Hillen's story could be proved. It would be considerably more difficult to verify what Hilland had to say about the murder of Biggie Smalls, however. According to Hilland, he met Suge Knight for the first and only time in the parking lot of a Denny's restaurant in Bellflower, where Knight was accompanied by Mac and Perez. After a brief conversation, Hilland said, Knight opened the trunk of his car, removed an envelope stuffed with hundred-dollar bills, and handed it to Perez, who then handed it to him. His job, Hilland said, was to fly to Arizona to hand this money over to a Phoenix cop who eventually obtained the weapon used in the hit on Smalls. The story sounds fantastic, I realize, said Hilland's Santa Monica attorney, W. Ronald Siebold, but Mr. Hilland tells it very convincingly. While both the LAPD and the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office dismissed Hillen's allegations, the FBI had interviewed him on four separate occasions, Siebold said. Hillen failed an FBI lie detector test in March of 2001, but a subsequent investigation turned up flight manifests and hotel records that showed the man had traveled to Phoenix on the dates he claimed. Siebold asked the U.S. Justice Department to take Hillen into federal protective custody. The FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office might have decided that they needed no new witnesses, however, after cutting a deal with Nino Durden. In late March, Durden agreed to a seven-year, eight-month federal prison sentence and promised to testify against Rafael Perez and other unindicted co-conspirators for crimes not fully specified. Durden had been arrested by the LAPD back in July of 2000 and charged with attempted murder in the shooting of Javier Ovando. It was, said then D.A. Garcetti, the most serious crime we can prove at this time. Shortly after Steve Cooley replaced Garcetti as district attorney, however, it was conceded that the evidence against Durden did not support an attempted murder charge. In his March 29, 2001 plea agreement with the U.S. Attorney's Office, Durden admitted he was guilty of violating Ovando's civil rights and agreed as well to plead guilty in at least three other cases in which he and Perez framed, beat, or robbed criminal suspects.
It seemed obvious to the Los Angeles Times that the federal government intended to use Durden in order to charge Perez with the Ovando shooting, but this was not necessarily so. The deal Perez had reached with the district attorney's office would make it difficult to prosecute him for any crimes to which he already had confessed. Perhaps, some speculated, Durden was prepared to testify that Perez had committed crimes not mentioned in his confessions, including those that involved David Mack and or other LAPD officers associated with death row records. Russell Poole regarded that as a dubious theory. Durden knows as well as anyone that if he goes up against Suge Knight, he'll have to spend the rest of his life either in protective custody or in hiding, Poole said. Even if he knows who killed Biggie Smalls, and I doubt he does, I don't think he'd ever talk about it. What the feds might be able to do with Durden, though, Poole said, was persuade Perez to talk to them about those matters he had refused to discuss earlier. If Perez believed he was facing serious prison time because of what Durden was prepared to say about him in court, I think he'd be willing to cut a new deal, this time with the feds, and tell them what he knows about David Mack and the rest of this, Poole said. That's assuming the feds want to know. Whatever they do with Durden, though, it's going to open this all up again, and I welcome that. In the meantime, the most startling revelation in the Biggie Smalls case had been produced not by the LAPD or the FBI or by the Los Angeles media, but by a documentary filmmaker based in West Sussex, England. Nick Broomfield was best known as the director of Kurt and Courtney, but had become fascinated by the Biggie Smalls murder, especially after meeting with Russell Poole in Los Angeles. Early in May of 2001, Broomfield flew to New York to look for those who had been part of the Bad Boy Entertainment entourage on the night of Biggie's killing. He was especially interested in meeting with Eugene Deal, the New York State parole officer who had impressed LAPD detectives as the most reliable witness among those in the caravan of cars that had carried Puffy Combs and Biggie Smalls to the Peterson Museum party in March of 1997. In his interviews with the police, Deal had been both first and strongest in denouncing the theory that Cripps committed the crime, mainly because Keefe D. and the other gang members he met at the Peterson party had shown him nothing but love that night. And Deal's description of the Nation of Islam guy, who seemed to be stalking Puffy Combs as they waited for their rides after the party, had always been the most intriguing statement provided by any of the witnesses to Biggie slaying. The Muslim-looking fellow, Deal told Broomfield, had been dressed and groomed just like James Lloyd and Gregory Young said the shooter was. He had the blue suit and bow tie and white shirt, peanut hair, receding hairline, brown skin. And after looking them all over very coolly, Deal explained, the Muslim walked away in the same direction that the killer's car came from just minutes later. Deal, by the way, believed that the assassin's prime target had been Puffy Combs, he said. If the first Suburban, the one carrying Combs, had stopped at the red light, Puffy probably would be dead today instead of Biggie. When Broomfield asked him to describe the Muslim's face, Deal answered that he had looked almost like the composite drawing of the killer that an LAPD artist had made with the help of Lil Cease and G-Money. Only this guy had a stronger cheekbone structure, where he looked a little sterner, Deal explained. Broomfield then showed Deal both composite drawings of the shooting suspect done by the LAPD and photographs of a half-dozen individuals who had been linked to the death of Biggie Smalls in one way or another. Deal immediately pointed to one photograph and said, That's him right there. That's him? A startled Broomfield asked. Yeah, Deal said. That's the guy who came up to me. That guy? That's him? Broomfield asked again. Yes, Deal answered. 
Were you ever shown this picture before? Broomfield asked. Deal shook his head. The LAPD had never shown him a photograph of this man, Deal would explain a few minutes later. That's definitely him, though, Broomfield asked again. Yup, Deal said, nodding his head vigorously. The man in the photograph was Harry Billups, a.k.a. Harry Muhammad, a.k.a. Amir Muhammad. When Broomfield told Deal the identity of the man he had picked out, the parole officer demanded to know why the police had not shown him a picture of Muhammad earlier. I gave them my description of the individual which was far different from the composite because of his cheekbone structure and everything like that, right? Why didn't they read my statement and look at this picture and put it to this, knowing he had something to do with it? That was the same question he wanted to ask, said Russell Poole, when Broomfield sent him a transcript of his filmed interview with Deal. I really want to hear what Fred Miller and Chuck Phillips of the Times have to say when they hear about this, Poole said. I wish I could see their faces when they read about it. But what I'd really, really like to see is the expression on Chief Parks's face when this comes out. If I had a picture of that, I'd hang it on my wall. Two weeks after Broomfield's interview with Deal, the frame placed on the Rampart scandal by the Los Angeles media was widened considerably by a pair of articles in national magazines. Published less than a week apart in The New Yorker and Rolling Stone, both articles placed the story of the Los Angeles police scandal in the context of the Gaines-Liga shooting, the David Mack bank robbery, and the Biggie Smalls murder investigation, something that no Los Angeles-based publication had done. The local press answered with attacks on the magazine writers that mainly demonstrated how ignorant they were about a story they had been covering for almost three years now. The most lengthy diatribe was written by Charles Rapley of the L.A. Weekly. Rapley debunked the Rolling Stone article, written by Randall Sullivan, author of this book, with exactly one named source, Richard McCauley, who insisted he was the only LAPD officer ever to work for Death Row Records. Rapoli, who had been writing about the Rampart scandal since 1999, apparently did not know that Sharitha Knight had told the LAPD back in March of 1997 that Kevin Gaines worked for Death Row, or that at least three LAPD officers had told investigators during early 1998 that David Mack attempted to recruit them to work for the rap label, or that Reggie Wright Jr. had named three additional LAPD officers who did security work for Death Row when he was interviewed by the LAPD's Internal Affairs Division in May of 1997. That made five LAPD officers, other than Richard McCauley, who had been identified by the department as employees of Death Row Records prior to the spring of 1998. While at least a dozen others had been named by one source or another as LAPD officers suspected of working for the rap label. When the author of the Rolling Stone article cited the internal affairs investigation in which Reggie Wright Jr. was interviewed, then noted that Richard McCauley had resigned from the LAPD in lieu of dismissal shortly before a trial board hearing where he faced six potentially criminal charges, each one related to the lies he had told about his work for death row. A humbled Rapley retreated into silence. The Los Angeles Times' strategy was to ignore the magazine articles altogether. While the San Fernando Valley's Daily News responded to the Rolling Stone and New Yorker articles with a front-page story, the Times' only mention of the magazine pieces was a tiny item in which the newspaper reported on an absurd racketeering lawsuit filed by Kevin Hackey. 
who had accused Rolling Stone and the New Yorker of joining the LAPD in a conspiracy against him. The Times's Chuck Phillips promised to publish a story that would utterly vindicate Suge Knight in the Biggie Smalls murder, but no such article ever appeared. Death Row Records itself did issue a statement that described the Rolling Stone article as ridiculous and absurd, warning that Suge Knight was meeting with his lawyers, among them David Mack's former criminal attorney, Donald Ray, in order to ascertain any lawful and legal remedies that may be available to him. And only hours after his release from federal prison in early August of 2001, Knight granted an interview to Chuck Phillips who produced an article that read more like a press release than a news report. After noting, once again, that Kevin Hackey had sued Rolling Stone for exposing him to immediate and imminent bodily harm, while failing to mention that Hackey's attorney had agreed several weeks earlier to drop the magazine as a defendant in the lawsuit, Phillips ended his article with a quote from Suge Knight. I'm God's child, and God always reveals the truth, Suge said. Those stories are full of lies. Not everyone thought so. Just a few weeks after the Rolling Stone article appeared, Russell Poole was visited by a pair of FBI agents who told him that, on the basis of what had come out recently in the media, the Bureau was launching its own investigation of Biggie Smalls' murder. Just about every question they asked me concerned the involvement of LAPD officers with death row records, Poole said. I have to admit I was encouraged. I don't know for sure where the FBI is headed, but neither of these two guys seem to be playing games. At almost that same moment, attorneys representing a former Long Beach police officer critically wounded by a gang member armed with a gun that was officially in the possession of the Compton Police Department sat down to depose the Compton PD's former deputy chief, Gary O. Anderson. His department, among several others, had been riddled with corruption, Anderson told the attorneys, much of it related to police officers who were in the employ of death row records. Read the Rolling Stone article, Anderson told the Long Beach officers' lawyers. It's right on the money. The loud rumble in the background, though, was the news that Valletta Wallace and the New York law firm that represented her son's estate were seriously contemplating a wrongful death lawsuit that would accuse individuals ranging from Bernard Parks to Suge Knight of responsibility for Biggie Smalls' murder. When Russell Poole flew back east for a meeting with Valletta Wallace in February of 2001, I told her that I still believed the truth would come out, the former detective said, but only if she took the lead in demanding it. During the summer of 2001, a team of attorneys based in Louisiana and Colorado, each of whom had become involved after reading the Rolling Stone article, began preparing the rough draft of a legal filing that would grow to more than 60 pages by Thanksgiving. After struggling for months with the idea that all of those named as conspirators in the pending lawsuit were black, Ms. Wallace decided to proceed. People are afraid of all the skeletons in the closet, she explained, but we have to let those skeletons out. I've been waiting more than four years. If we keep waiting... I'm afraid there won't be anybody left alive to talk by the time they finally open the door to that closet. Epilogue All through the spring of 2001, Russell Poole's lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles had been delayed by a series of defense motions and requests for continuance. Then, on June 6th, one day after James Hahn was elected mayor of Los Angeles, 
U.S. District Court Judge Stephen Wilson dismissed Poole's suit on the grounds that the statute of limitations had expired by the time it was filed. This bad news was followed almost immediately by a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that the statute of limitations did not apply in cases where a timely complaint had been made to supervisors who failed to adequately investigate it. In such cases as those, the court ruled, the statute of limitations was effectively suspended. Poole's attorneys promptly filed an appeal of Judge Wilson's dismissal of the suit with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in San Francisco, which responded to the initial filings by urging Los Angeles city officials to sit down with Poole's attorneys and cut a deal. The city's attorneys, obviously shaken, replied that they would prefer to have a ruling from the court before deciding on a course of action. The Ninth Circuit is expected to rule sometime in early 2002. No matter what the appeals court's decision, however, it seemed unlikely that Bernard Parks would be forced to submit to a deposition by Poole's attorneys before his term as Los Angeles police chief ends in August of 2002. Parks must be one of the luckiest men alive, Poole observed. The chief already was caught up in another controversy, however, this one created by his refusal to permit LAPD officers to wear an American flag pin that honored the victims of the September 11th terrorist attacks on U.S. citizens. The sheer folly and arrogance of the man had resulted in attacks on his character by journalists across the country. The Los Angeles Times, however, did not consider the matter worthy of even a brief article. The Times chose also to ignore the results of a survey of the LAPD's rank-and-file officers conducted by the Police Protective League that were published in late November of 2001. Asked to grade their chief of police, LAPD officers gave Parks a C- for integrity, a D for trustworthiness, and Fs for innovation, communication, and collaboration. 72% of those who responded told the PPL that they did not trust Chief Parks. By far and away, this is the most negative report card ever given to a Los Angeles police chief by those who served under him, said PPL President Mitzi Grasso. It exemplifies Park's lack of leadership qualities. L.A.'s new mayor, James Hahn, insisted that LAPD morale was improving. Racial politics continued to be the chief impediment to criminal investigations involving rap labels. In Texas, a federal drug investigation focused on the Houston label Rap-A-Lot and its owner, James Prince, was frozen after Representative Maxine Waters sent a letter to Attorney General Janet Reno requesting that she intervene on behalf of an African-American entrepreneur who had been harassed and intimidated by the Drug Enforcement Agency. Prince's business dealings had been of interest to federal authorities since 1988, when a car bearing dealer plates from a used car lot he owned was stopped near El Paso by police officers, who found more than 200 pounds of cocaine in a hidden compartment. Prince's cousin, who carried a card identifying him as a salesman for the car lot, sat in the passenger seat of the vehicle when it was stopped. While the salesman was released, because of insufficient evidence that he knew about the cocaine hidden in the vehicle, the driver was convicted and sentenced to federal prison. James Prince later helped the wife of the convicted man set up a bail bond company housed in the Rapalot building. A federal task force formed in 1998 arrested several Rapalot employees, as well as a black Houston police officer convicted of using his patrol car to help one of the Rap Label's employees rob a drug dealer.
The first federal trial of a Rapalot employee arrested by the task force ended with a hung jury in April of 2000 at the end of a proceeding in which the star prosecution witness was threatened by a courtroom spectator while testifying, and a juror complained that another spectator had attempted to write down her car's license plate number. A month after Waters' letter was sent, Prince was interviewed by the DEA's Office of Professional Responsibility in the Congresswoman's Washington office. Despite the fact that her congressional district was more than a thousand miles from Houston, Waters was present for that interview, an event DEA officials described as unprecedented. Almost immediately afterward, the probe of the Rapalot label was suspended over the strenuous objections of narcotics detectives in Houston, and the DEA agent who had been in charge of the field investigation was transferred to a desk job. One year later, Prince's label released a CD in which rapper Brad Scarface Jordan boasted about the ability of the Rapalot Mafia to stop a federal investigation, end the careers of agents involved in it, and kill those who became police informants. Our tax dollars at work, observed Russell Poole, who had followed the Rapalot investigation from Los Angeles. Puffy Combs was proving no less adroit than Suge Knight at avoiding incarceration. Combs had been skating out of trouble with the law since 1991, when nine people were killed in a stampede at a celebrity basketball game he had promoted. While Combs was assigned 50% culpability in a civil suit, no criminal charges were filed. In 1995, Combs was convicted of criminal mischief for threatening a photographer, but he got off with a fine. That same year, he was arrested by the FBI in Washington, D.C. for menacing a man with a gun in a parking lot near Georgetown University. Puffy was released on his promise to appear later in a D.C. courtroom, but he never did, and the charges were mysteriously dropped. In 1998, Combs was investigated for firing a gun in a Cleveland hotel room, but no charges were filed. Puffy was arrested in early 1999 for an attack on record executive Steve Stout in which Combs and his associates reportedly beat the man with a champagne bottle, a chair, and a telephone. Before the charge against Combs was reduced from assault to harassment, Chuck Phillips weighed in with a piece that ran on the front page of the Los Angeles Times' business section, writing, In a business where bare-knuckle tactics are common, Combs' alleged literal use of them on an executive at a rival corporation is an extraordinary event with no precedent. Suge Knight's criminal history apparently didn't count for much in Phillips's mind. Only a few months later, Combs, girlfriend Jennifer Lopez, and their entourage of approximately 30 people arrived for the weekly hot chocolate party at Club New York in Manhattan, where they spent most of their time in a roped-off VIP section. Puffy and his rapper Shine at some point got into an argument with a man who allegedly tossed a wad of money at the pair. According to eyewitnesses, both Combs and his rapper pulled semi-automatic pistols. Shots were fired, and three people standing outside the velvet ropes were wounded. Police later found shell casings from two separate weapons. Seventeen days later, Combs was arrested on charges that he had carried two loaded guns in his Lincoln Navigator as he fled the nightclub, one of which was thrown from the vehicle. Both pistols had been recently fired, according to police. Despite the testimony of witnesses who said they had seen Combs fire his pistol inside Club New York, Puffy was acquitted at a trial in which his defense team included Johnny Cochran.
In August of 2001, just as Suge Knight was preparing for his release from federal prison, Combs granted an interview to Details magazine, which was preparing a photo spread of Puffy and his new girlfriend, model Emma Hemming, wearing diamond crosses, Chanel sunglasses, and nothing else. The interview ended quickly, however, when the magazine's reporter asked if Combs was concerned that the East versus West rap feud would flare up again when Death Row's CEO was released from prison. If y'all want to know about East Coast, West Coast, why don't you ask Suge Knight? Why don't you interview him? Combs demanded, then stormed out. Suge reportedly was much amused. His vow to restart Death Row Records, now known simply as The Row, had been aided considerably by the success of an album the label had assembled from Tupac Shakur's outtakes and released in March 2001. Tupac's posthumous CD, Until the End of Time, had gone triple platinum by the time Knight was released from prison. Suge struck new deals with both domestic and international distributors and reportedly was in negotiations to sign Lisa Left Eye Lopez of TLC, the hip-hop bad girl best known for burning down her boyfriend's house. According to Suge's PR reps, Lopez would give up her Left Eye nickname to be marketed by The Row as Nina, an acronym that happened to be gangsta-speak for a 9mm pistol. Neither Suge Knight nor his renamed record label was free of the past, however. In December of 2000, a jury in Los Angeles had awarded $4.34 million in compensatory damages and another $10 million in punitive damages to record execs Lamont and Ken Broomfield, who claimed that back in 1993, Knight had persuaded the rapper Corrupt, Ricardo Brown Jr., to break his contract with them and sign a new one with Death Row Records. David Kenner, who had represented Shogun Death Row in court, promptly vowed to appeal. And only days after Chuck Phillips greeted Suge's return to L.A. with a puff piece that ran on page one of the Times' business section, the paper was obliged to report, in a story that ran on page six of the same section, that the rapper, Daz Dillinger, Delmar Arnaud, had sued Knight and Death Row for cheating him out of more than one million dollars in royalties. Suge would profess both his religious faith and his patriotism in public statements made after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. And when construction resumed on the 9,000-square-foot mansion in the hills above the San Fernando Valley that Knight had abandoned when he began his prison sentence back in 1997, Suge announced that he did not intend to live in the house, but rather would use it to create a positive environment for troubled youth. Only an outpouring of protests by outraged neighbors prevented the project from proceeding. What a shame, remarked Suge, who insisted that all he ever wanted to do was serve his people. The same month that Suge was released from prison, Afeni Shakur showed up in Georgia to attend groundbreaking ceremonies for the Tupac Amaru Center for the Arts, scheduled to open in March of 2003 with a studio space for the performing arts and a gallery whose first showing would be of paintings and drawings sent to Afeni by fans of her son's music. An adjacent garden was to commemorate Tupac and other victims of gun violence. The Christopher Wallace Memorial Foundation, meanwhile, already had been operating for almost four years as a distributor of scholarships and grants to deserving students from inner-city schools. Valletta Wallace said the organization's goal was to make B.I.G. an acronym for books instead of guns. While it seemed certain that the murders of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls would never be solved by the police in Las Vegas and Los Angeles, 
That did not mean the killers were in the clear. Two days before Thanksgiving 2001, a team of FBI agents arrived at the home of Russell Poole to collect copies of the investigative files he had kept in storage for more than three years now. The Bureau had decided to proceed without asking for any assistance at all from the Los Angeles Police Department, the agents told Poole. They said they didn't want their investigation to be contaminated, reported Poole. I never thought I'd get satisfaction from hearing a word like that used to describe contact with the LAPD. Nearly everyone he asked for advice, including his own attorney, had warned him not to share his documents with the feds, Poole said. I went ahead anyway, he explained, because I figured, hey, it's my government too. I don't want to end up feeling like there's nobody I can trust. One week before Christmas 2001, the team of attorneys who now listed their clients as Faith Evans, Valletta Wallace, and the estate of Christopher Wallace were still haggling over the language of a lawsuit they intended to file before the end of the year. The lead lawyers were Perry Sanders of Louisiana and Robert Frank of Colorado, nationally renowned litigators whose class-action lawsuits on behalf of United Airlines flight attendants and against the Slage Corporation were already among the most closely watched in the country. Earlier drafts of the lawsuit prepared by Sanders and Frank named not only Bernard Parks, but also David Mack and Amir Muhammad as defendants in racketeering claims they intended to make against the city of Los Angeles and the LAPD. These versions of the lawsuit contained the specific allegation that defendants Amir Muhammad and David Mack conspired to murder Christopher Wallace. After the New York attorneys representing the Wallace estate had signed off, however, the Los Angeles lawyers retained as local counsel persuaded Sanders and Frank to significantly reduce the scope of the suit, dropping the racketeering claims to focus on the LAPD's deliberate indifference. Specifically, the suit would allege that the LAPD failed to properly supervise its officers, ignored or concealed the fact that officers were involved with death row records, and deliberately chose not to investigate the probability that LAPD officers were involved in the murder of Biggie Smalls. David Mack and Amir Muhammad were still named as defendants on state civil rights claims in the revised draft of the lawsuit, but attorneys had taken a tack that did not require them to prove that the two conspired to kill Biggie Smalls, only that there was probable cause to investigate that likelihood. After they filed the lawsuit in early 2002, Perry Sanders said, the first witness they intended to depose was Russell Poole. Suge Knight and Bernard Parks would come later. On January 9, 2002, the Los Angeles Times published a front-page article written by Chuck Phillips that began, A Federal Racketeering Probe into Allegations that Marion Suge Knight and his Los Angeles label, Death Row Records, committed acts of murder, drug trafficking, money laundering, and gun running, has resulted in a pair of misdemeanor tax charges. While federal authorities have declined to discuss or even confirm the investigation, Phillips reported, two anonymous law enforcement sources had told him the criminal probe of Suge Knight was over. According to a pair of plea bargain deals filed in the U.S. District Court one day earlier, Death Row Records and David Kenner would pay fines of $100,000 and $20,000 respectively, but no criminal charges in connection to the tax violations would be filed against Suge Knight. Kenner faced as much as a year in jail, but would file a request for probation, according to his attorney, Donald Ray. Phillips's article also cited a letter from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles stating that Knight would not be prosecuted for money laundering. Knight hailed this news as a vindication, 
I appreciate the fact that, after looking into these lies and finding nothing, the government had the integrity to say, okay, this guy broke no law, and called it off. Neither Knight nor his attorneys commented on the fact that the letter from the U.S. Attorney's Office had not cleared him of murder, drug trafficking, or gun running. But Knight did attack Rolling Stone magazine and the VH1 television network for reports that linked him to the deaths of Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls. As had been his practice for more than a decade now, Knight accused his accusers of racism. Do you think they could get away with publishing this kind of crap about a white executive? He asked Phillips. No way. The Times article briefly quoted Russell Poole, who told Phillips, I believe that Suge Knight was involved in the murders of Biggie and Tupac. In my opinion, neither Knight nor Chief Parks have been held accountable for what they've done. On the morning the Times article ran, Poole took a phone call from two FBI agents who had told him they were launching an independent investigation of Suge Knight's possible role in the murders of Shakur and Smalls. They told me they were happy about the Times story, Poole reported. They said, this is all good. We'd like Suge Knight to think that the federal government is no longer investigating him. This has been an Audible Studios production of Labyrinth, the true story of City of Lies, the murders of Tupac Shakur and Notorious B.I.G., and the implication of the Los Angeles Police Department. Written by Randall Sullivan. Performed by Kevin Free. Felix the Cat Mitchell created one of the biggest criminal organizations in Oakland's history. As the leader of a heroin empire, Mitchell was Oakland's first large-scale drug kingpin. He threw lavish parties, bought expensive cars and jewelry, and he did it all before his 21st birthday. In that 94 to 1996 time frame, in all of your dealings and associates with Tupac Shakur or Suge Knight or other artists or, or associates of Death Row Records, did they at any time express any type of animosity toward either Mr. Wallace or Mr. Sean Combs? Suge Knight did. And what it did was personal. Think? He took it personal, but now I'm, I'm speaking after the fact once we was incarcerated together, and I'll wait till, you, till we get to that. But right now, then, it was like a personal thing. When we talked about it, it was, you know, uh, I need I need this done. Like, so, and Tupac told me don't pay no attention because he had plans to leave and come back to Oakland and start his own thing. Have you ever met a Los Angeles police officer named David Mack? Yes, I have. Is there a time frame during which you met and the same time frame from 93 to 96. Uh, I met him in Vegas once. And I met him on a video shoot in uh, Los Angeles. I think it was in the Crenshaw district at the, the Marla Gibbs Theater place where they film at, right off of Lamarck. Uh, we was doing something over there. I can't remember what it was, but I actually met him. In what circumstance did you meet him? I met him at the club in the party circumstance and at the one a video shoot in Los Angeles. When you refer to the club, what club? 662 Club in Vegas. Was 
at the time, Mr. Mack, with other death row associated persons? Yes. Yes, he was. This is a key piece of information that connects Suge Knight to David Mack. How would you know that he was with those folks? Uh, Snoop, Das, Corrupt. Um, and we was in the VIP section of the club. Matter of fact, one night, Suge closed the club down and told everybody. He made most of the guys leave, kept all the women. and said the drinks and everybody, everything's on house. He locked the door and said, all right, we're going to party. Ain't nobody leaving. You know, it was a, just like, it was off the hook. And he was there. But, he, you know, we had a little separate rooms and stuff where we all took our girls. Or what, you know, a little drugs and did our little thing. So I don't know what he did and what anybody, I know what I did and what me and Tupac did. Mr. Hammonds, have you seen this photograph before? Yes, I have. And I'm referring to the photograph labeled as Exhibit 2. Yes. Is it fair, sir, that uh, you and I discussed this photograph prior to your deposition? Yes. Uh, this person right here is uh, was a sometime bodyguard, Rafael Perez. This is uh, David Mack. I can't remember this cat's name right here. Okay. Did this you see one. that person before? Yes, I've seen him before, but I don't remember his name. Did... David Mack, to your knowledge, ever appeared to be performing either bodyguard services or, or any type of security work for death row? Yes, he, he, he was, because at the club, Suge said, if I had any problems, go to him, Tupac. And Suge said, go to this other guy in the red. Because there were some unfriendlies in the club that got locked in that night in the club. So, uh, so I'm making an assumption that he was part of the security or whatever. It's just like us. We have guys do our dirty work to protect us up here up north. Yeah, you'd indicated that you had also seen Mr. Mack at a, a video shooting. Was that a video shooting that was in any way associated with a death row artist? Yes, uh, it, was one of, it was one of Tupac's videos, I think, uh, with Jodeci or someone else. Jodeci. Based upon what you observed of Mr. Mack during that video shoot did he appear to be there in a role of security or was he there in another role he appeared to be there in a shot caller position what we call in control okay what is a shot caller position in control yeah okay well, let's 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 i'll make it more uh plainer a vice journey in absent of chill night okay meaning vice journey meaning in absent of can you describe to me the conduct that you observed that led you to believe that um People going to him, asking him questions. I'm a Tupac telling me, man, you know, let him know if you see somebody that's that's not a friendly. When we say by friendly, mean a, a foe or enemy. And, you know, make sure you let him know. Have you seen that picture before you and I discussed it? Uh, yeah. And how did you come to see that photograph previously? I seen that photograph in L.A., uh, years ago, and the FBI showed me that photograph. And did the FBI ask you to identify any person in the photograph? Yes. And did you do so? Yes, I did. And did the identification of the persons within the photograph that you gave to the FBI differ in any way from the identifications that you've made of that photograph today? No. Have you ever provided photographs to any law enforcement agency uh, relating to your attendance at any death row function? I supplied photos of me, Tupac, Tupac, Shug, Amir Muhammad, Amir Muhammad, Amir Muhammad, David Mack, 
Snoop Dogg, Daz Dillinger, Corrupt, and numerous of other people that was at parties in LA and Vegas that we I had took and I gave them to an FBI agent because I was enlisting as an agent provocateur. Once the FBI found out that I knew and I started hanging out with Tupac and them, they enlisted me and uh, financed my trips to where I was renting Rolls Royces from Beverly Hills and staying in the, the nice hotels to go along with the image that they wanted me to have when associating with these people. I need to stop this and make sure that you heard this testimony. Mario Hammond stated very clearly that he provided the FBI photographs of Tupac, Suge, Amir Muhammad, David Mack, Snoop Dogg, and Corrupt. Another connection that Mack, Perez, and Amir Muhammad did have a relationship with Suge and Death Row Records. Mario called Mack a shot caller, someone who was in charge. This is the first time you have heard a connection between Suge, Mack, Perez, and the alleged trigger man, Amir Muhammad. Keep in mind that Mario Hammonds was a trusted career informant. He worked for the Secret Service, he worked for the LAPD, and he worked for the FBI. Do you know who Amir Muhammad is? Yes. And who is Amir Muhammad? Amir Muhammad is a Muslim brother of mine. Okay. And how did you meet Mr. Muhammad? In, L in L.A., in Las Vegas. And was Mr. Muhammad with David Mack at that time? Yes. And is that how you know who Mr. Muhammad is? That's the only way I know. That is the only way I know. That is the only way I know. Next time on The Dossier. After the murder of Mr. Wallace, did Mr. Knight make any statements to you regarding the murder of Mr. Wallace? Yes, he made several and numerous statements uh, all the time that we were there in CMC. And he said, my people handled their business and they took care of it when you could have made that money up north. You guys could have did that. But my people did it and he explained to me because he had entrusted me. And he said that, yeah, they took care of business and he took it like a big fat bitch. And he started laughing. And he said, we just missed Puffy, Sean Combs, because he explained to me that this wasn't a Tupac issue. This was a Biggie and Sean Combs issue. He hated those two individuals with a passion. With a passion, they say. Context of white supremacy. We are all done. Our only audio segment for this week. We'll share our thoughts, wrap up, and get to enjoy our Thursday evening a little bit early. Number to dial is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate, the number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like 
to participate. Mm. Email is untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, let me see. I'll get one email in now and then I'll get the rest in as we go. Uh, first person that wrote in, uh, I'm following the book club and this topic was brought up about uh, Notorious B.I.G. Why would they do the song uh, Who Shot Ya after Tupac was shot? This is the first time around uh, 1994 that he survived. Why would they release that song afterwards? Rudy said, I'm very familiar with uh, Mutai, a.k.a. Napoleon, a member of the Outlaws. He is from my old area in Irvington. He talked about the song as bad timing on Bad Boy Records behalf. You may want to get him on the program. If you had questions, being he was next to Tupac for many years, he has done many interviews. Maybe you should check out some to see if it would be worth getting him on the program. I can ask my nephew to speak to him if you like. Much obliged. White guests only. Uh, And the reason I say that, the second or the little extra audio segment that we had there at the end from the dossier on... I think some of the folks that are associated with this host the podcast and what have you uh, are white. I could be in error. It is a podcast. You don't have video in front of you. Um, But you heard a little bit there and hearing these folks, they're talking to informants and jailhouse snitches, Mario Hammond and all the rest of it. I mean, what in the world like didn't we just hear that last book like okay so I go find black person who's locked up and or black person who admits to being an informant and provocateur pause right there before I even go forward that was why I played that I said man this guy is admitting that he's an informant all that jailhouse niche whatever you want to label it he said he specifically is an agent provocateur maybe I'm an ignorant I'm ignorant my understanding of an agent provocateur is someone whose assignment is specifically you are to go in and be disruptive, encourage uh, criminal activity uh, and behavior that would bring unwanted attention to the organization. So you go join the group and you want to encourage them to do drugs and shooting and drink and drive and lots of non-constructive things that will probably cause problems bring them to the attention of enforcement officers I think that's generally the type of assignment for an agent provocateur why would you need an agent provocateur for death row records when it seems they're already engaged in a lot of non-constructive activities that would bring the attention of enforcement officials why would you need an agent provocateur for such an organization that gave me tremendous pause but the other component and linking this with the email like at least in my opinion it has become a cottage industry right anytime you have uh, a death of a notable person somebody who's so called famous or well known and it's a mystery it's not solved system of white supremacy you love the murder mystery ooh, Johnny, ooh. Uh, and this will just go on for 40, 50, 60 years 100 years you know same thing with uh, JFK Elvis Presley just all the time all these mysteries so and one part of that it's particularly when there's not going to be anything conclusive it's not going to be anything where we definitively solve this case or this is what happened just endless hearsay and speculation and unsubstantiated rumors and the worst of it 
getting and even sometimes it'll be victims of racism where this is a cottage industry we can just do tours and sell books and promote things talking about the good old days and hanging out with Tupac Shakur and all of that sometimes they don't I mean now I mean we're talking now about something that happened basically 30 years ago how good do you think your memory is going to be after 30 I don't care how traumatic the event is like nobody's memory is that good like 30 years details start to drift away and all the rest of it like white guests only I'm good on all that Uh, I would just say if anything it has been appalling to me reading and seeing how little facts this whole book I feel like no footnotes things aren't substantiated we just got a whole lot word in the streets was Suge Knight was trying to kill everybody P. Diddy and Biggie Smalls even Craig Mack he was going to get him too miss you Craig Mack that's a whole lot of it and where did you get this information from oh uh, prisoner uh, number 859-2 actually he's an agent provocateur actually we got that from prisoner uh, 69L-53 like you nothing no records no fingerprints nothing all we got is he said and she said and he said and she said and he said the word on the street was Woo! Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Let us see. Uh, folks who dialed in with a hand up will get your commentary. Read the rest of our emails. I'll get my thoughts in, and we will call it a book club. Uh, let's see. Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir. All right. Greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, The clip that you played in the beginning uh, in regards to David Kenner and also uh, Harry O. I uh, was also in it. Uh, just a reminder, uh, Harry O earlier this year was pardoned by Donald Trump uh, from his federal charges. So um, the guy who was charged and convicted of murder and one of the biggest cocaine distributors uh, in the West Coast uh, was uh, was pardoned by Trump uh, for his uh, criminal justice reform, I guess. Uh, but yet uh, Mumia Abdul-Jamal still sits in jail. Um, they're making, you know, like this last chapter, 13, uh, Ray Perez, you know, is like this criminal mastermind of the Rampart scandal, uh, you know, I'm surprised they didn't make him hard owner of death row records, <laughs> considering what they're making Perez out to be. So, uh, it, you know, it, it, I mean, the, the, the evidence is not there, and the testimony is basically all over the place. Uh, not to say that Perez, you know, was a was a good was a good person or a good cop, uh, but actually, you know, they're making Perez like he's out. so. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what I got out of that. Uh, uh, you know, another thing about this Rampart scandal, so. He says in the book, uh, a total of five LAPD officers have been fired by 
by then, and another 40 had been disciplined. Now, he doesn't go into the accounts of who was fired, who was disciplined uh, by racial classification, but yet uh, he talks about the racial classification of a jury uh, of, you know, uh, what was it, uh, two, two or three whites and, and the rest were minorities, as he calls them, uh, non-white people. Uh, so he doesn't go into the breakdown of the racial classifications of all of these people who have been convicted in this Rampart scandal. Uh, like I said, the testimonies of, of these uh, of these jailhouse snitches is just is just basically all over the place, untrustworthy. Uh, you know, when they were talking about the testimony of Hackey, you know, all he did was just cite people at at different places. He reported no criminal activity. None of these guys were doing anything criminal as far as what he was saying. All he was just doing was associating David Mack to Suge Knight and Ray Perez to Death Row Records, and, and that's all that it was. No citing of any criminal activities, no murders, no, no drug transactions, no nothing like that. Um, and in and, and, and this book, you know, is part of my uh, – uh, it's part of, a part of my uh, – what I think about this book, I mean, I think this book is actually worse than Jeffrey Tubin's book, um, and I'm glad you had this book after uh, the Geronimo uh, Pratt, uh, Pratt book, uh, and you notice how, uh, at least in the Geronimo Pratt book, you know, there's not a lot of footnotes, um, I mean, but there is some, and you also you also get a view uh, or court records of questions and answering uh, as far as kind of like scrutinizing the testimony. So basically uh, this author is just basically just, you know, going by what the, what, you know, what these witnesses say, but there's no like real courtroom scrutiny of, of it. No questioning, you know, unlike, like I said, the Jack Olson book, you know, you actually get recordings of uh, the questions and answering, and you can probably see some of the lies uh, or, or some of the truths that some of uh, test, uh, the some of the defendants and the uh, witnesses have uh, have applied to. So you don't see that in this book. Um, he said that uh, after struggling for months with the idea, uh, he's talking about. Uh, 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 Christopher Wallace's mom, uh, in regards to the civil uh, civil suit she filed, uh, is says that after struggling for months, the idea of all those named as conspirators in the pending lawsuit were black. Miss Wallace decided to proceed, but then he goes on and, and prints the quotes, and she says none of that. <laughs> so I don't know where he got that from. Where. Uh, she was, uh, you know, she, she was struggling uh, and pending because all of the the uh, the people in the lawsuit were, were black. I, I didn't get that from that quote that he had just uh, 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 printed after that. Uh, the Rapalite thing uh, in the epilogue, you know, and and it's so funny. Uh, no evidence there of uh, of any. Uh, criminal activity from the Rapalot, uh, uh, from the Rapalot group, but you know, obviously there were some people doing, you know, things that they weren't doing, but they weren't doing it 
or he never mentions or anybody mentions that they were doing it on behalf of Rap-A-Lot Records. I mean, all he can say was a convicted uh, a cop was convicted for letting some guy use his car uh, for a robbery, uh, and he happened to be a Rap-A-Lot employee. But that does not tie him to, you know, if, if Rap-A-Lot was responsible for the robbery. <laughs> um, he says that uh, when he's talking about uh, Lisa uh, Left Eye Lopes, uh, that she took on the moniker uh, Nina as a reference to a gangster uh, reference or, you know, whatever he mentioned. But actually it is an acronym. Uh, which he says, but he never says what the acronym is. But the acronym, uh, according to uh, uh, Left Eye's Wikipedia page, was New Identity Not Applicable. That doesn't sound like anything that has to do with any guns or gangster or anything like that. So a uh, little misdirection there from that, probably bad reporting in journalism uh, as well. Uh, defendants of Amir Muhammad and David Mack conspired to murder Christopher Wallace uh, in that suit that uh, he mentioned as well. So how does, you know, uh, how, how can you get the conspirators, but you yet have to find the actual murderer or murderers of Christopher Wallace? You have no weapon. You have no eyewitness uh, testimony uh, or reliable eyewitness testimony. Uh, for, so you don't have a murderer. So how could you file conspiracy charges against these people? And lastly, uh, going to uh, the Rampart scandal, which he seems to be keen on with you know black police officers. Now, I was doing some research, and I learned that the first officers that were charged in the Rampart scandal was uh, Brian Liddy, Edward Ortiz, and Michael Buchanan. Now, he mentions Edward Ortiz. Uh, in in, in um, Ray Perez's testimony, but he never mentions Brian Liddy. He never mentions Michael Buchanan, which, from I also understand, the charges were dropped against them as well uh, for lack of evidence. So, I'm, I'm and and I, and I and I looked at the pictures uh, at least online of Brian Liddy. And Michael Buchanan, and they look like they can be classified as white. Now, Edward Ortiz, even though he has a uh, uh, Hispanic name, uh, you know, he looks like he's white, but you know, he has a Spanish name, so I don't know how you classify him. But Brian Liddy and Michael Buchanan look like they're white, but he never mentions them in the book. Uh, that's all I have right now in my life. Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago, <clears throat> doing the extra workforce on the white officers being excluded and the acronym for it. And again, that's <clears throat> I appreciate footnotes in books for so many reasons. Not only is it, hey, what do you mean they don't use diapers or toilet paper on the continent? What do you mean? Give me a footnote. Where are you getting this information from? It's not just that it's <clears throat> if you put footnotes and I think I've said this before hey, maybe I want to go get more information maybe I want to learn about this like really I didn't even know that you know left eye was going to go and, and do her own individual thing and was looking for record like wow maybe I want to read about that 
but I can't do that. You don't have any footnotes, just, oh, yeah, she was going to name herself after a gun, blah, 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 and moving on. Master Deceivers, a great contrast with uh, Geronimo Pratt, Last Man Standing, that, hey, you don't have to bog down and feel like, oh, man, you know, regular lay people, lay readers, if you will, uh, who are not scholars and they're going to go through and read every footnote and everything. It'll bog them down. They won't be interested. Contraire, mon frere. You don't have to read every single footnote. You can just glance as you need them. Uh, last man standing, he had footnotes, sometimes to explain, sometimes to give additional pertinent information, context. We had the uh, court transcripts there, <coughs> trial transcripts there as well. That's an enormous difference. Instead of all that uh, innuendo and the word, and the, let's go to the document. Go right through. Let's get right to it, man. Start all this nonsense. Uh, let's see. I'll get another email in. Keep an eye on the switchboard. If folks have comments they want to get in for our final session on Labyrinth, Randall Sullivan, uh, one of our investors uh, wrote in final thoughts number one I appreciated the information information on the life of Tupac and Biggie prior to the celebrity which gave me a more accurate picture of them as opposed to the caricatures they are most often associated with two before reading this book if someone would have asked me who killed Tupac and Biggie I would have said Suge Knight for sure had something to do with it. This book did not convince of this and raised a lot of other possibilities. Now, I thought that was the whole premise of the book, that Suge Knight, you know, would have killed P. Diddy and Craig Mack, too, if he had the chance. Number three, I had more than a few typos in my book, which was interesting. I wonder if anyone else noted that. Now, I noted discrepancies. Now, I said that uh, um, the Chitlin Circuit, I remember that when I said in my book it was Minstrel Show instead of uh, Chitlin Circuit. I don't recall typos per se. Maybe I didn't, wasn't paying attention. I'm not a champion uh, spell, uh, speller like uh, Little Miss, uh, what is it, Zara Avant-Garde. I'm not a championship speller like her, so I might not have uh, noticed. But there were definitely discrepancies uh, between my copy and the audio book. Had the e-copy. I don't know if... Uh, I invested here as a paper or electronic version, but typos as well. Like with again, for me, that would just be further with the sloppiness. There are no footnotes. It's not supported. It's just he said, she said, say whatever I want to. That it's all you know, no count villainous black people uh, and their Negro politics to make sure that no black people get in trouble and Rodney King, O.J. Simpson. Let's see. Let me get to some of uh, my notes for our final chapter, chapter 13 in the epilogue, and then we will be all done. Unless folks have any other comments they want to make sure they get in. You have to check. Uh, I'll decide if we're going to do basically it's Shaft, Earl Tidy Man. Talk about homoeroticism. Have to see if we can get someone who's willing to narrate the whole thing. I'm not doing it at all. I've already done my I narrated uh, Last Man Standing. So I've done my narration for 2021. Uh, or Woody Allen's autobiography where he talks about his child rape adventures. I would be excited for either one. And the goodie with that one is that Woody Allen narrates it himself. So overjoyed about that. Um, but that's where it would be. Shaft, 
I would like to read Shaft in summertime. I like to read at least our fiction book if we're going to do fiction in the summertime. So be cool if we could do Shaft. We'd have to have someone who's really to read cover to cover because Gus is not reading one paragraph. All right, getting to the notes. Let's see. Chapter 13. When the trial of those accused of framing the gang member on weapons charge finally began, however, the decision made more sense. Three out of four officers were white, while 10 of the 12 jurors who had passed judgment on them were minorities. Dun, dun, dun. Great. Again, as I said, Henry in Chicago, giving us the additional uh, additional information about these initial officers. And then I'm even pausing here like, wait a minute. This is the exact same thing that we got from old Jeff Tubin. Not that I mean, hey, white people have a long documented history of deliberately excluding black jurors, getting all white juries so that they can practice racism and totally ignore the uh, evidence, evidence, as we've been saying, and vote guilty or innocent based on white supremacy racism. Long, undeniable history of that. And in fact, even the prosecutors deliberately excluding black jurors which is a crime and getting away with it for I want to say centuries there too so we put that but no 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 it's oh yeah the negras are coordinating again so that they can get a full minority jury and then they can convict all the white people like what is that the history in the United States black Johnny L. Cochran's of the world they have figured out some sort of scheme to get minority juries now even that now that minority, I mean, hey, I've seen minority used to describe white women. I've seen minority used to describe people like Cameron Diaz and, you know, also like white Latino and all the rest of it. So, I mean, you have to tell me something like if you can put minority on it, like we could have a whole jury of racially ambiguous people. And you're acting like this is a whole Johnny uh, Cochran and sister soldier up here saying, oh, yeah, we're not going to take it down with the man. Next, he says. Mm-mm-mm. we get in a story with a, a foot being placed on another black person's back of another black person's neck the names I pointed that out regularly in the book uh, she says Rafael Perez's uh, former girlfriend uh, Flores she comes in and says that uh, she saw him get into it or talking with this 8th street gangbanger I guess Stymie <laughs> It's like one of the racist names for black people. I mean, the word itself just means to, to halt or have someone be uh, inhibited in some way, retarded in their development, progression. Uh, let's see. Speaking of O.J. Simpson, Jeffrey Tubin, one of our favorite prosecutors in L.A. Gil Garcetti who was in the last book as well trying to keep Geronimo Pratt uh, in prison so he finally loses uh, his seat uh, to be uh, district attorney of L.A. and then he sees the officers convicted uh, in this rampart scandal and then that conviction is going to be vacated so lots of defeats for old Gil Garcetti who wanted to be mayor where his son is now and uh, we bid him adieu for the 90s uh, and he's still to this day Mr. Garcetti the elder uh, goes around and talks about no count O.J. Simpson and Johnny Cochran and all the rest of it. L.A.'s finest. Next. Uh, 
the demoralized enforcement officials. We hear this all the time. I've been hearing that throughout Black Lives Matter. Uh, I say to anybody, you're that demoralized about your job. You should have talked to your guidance counselor. And I mean, if you want to be demoralized, you should have been demoralized during the O.J. Simpson trial when one of your officers embarrassed the entire uh, police organization on the whole with no count Mark G.E.D. Furman lying and practicing racism and the incompetent LAPD investigators and uh, the lying officers uh, Van Natter, Phil Van Natter, Tom Lang lying. Lots of reasons that they should have been embarrassed and had low morale uh, throughout the 1990s. Go all the way back to Simi Valley and Rodney King. If you want a reason to be embarrassed and have low morale, it should not have taken all the way till we get to the end of the decade. And oh man, all this rampart and all the rest. And they're blaming us and talking about how corrupt we are. If the cap fits, wear it. Talk to your guidance counselor. Let's see. Oh, 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 wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. Almost missed it up because he, he doesn't just say all that. He adds to it. Mr. Sullivan says. And so they're all upset, which he part. This sounds like workplace racism where they don't like an uppity nigger. They called him arrogant too. heard that about uh, Chief Bernard Parks. He's arrogant, old arrogant black Negro chief. Uh, he said. Quit. Even with the substantially reduced requirements that had been implemented in the name of diversity, the department was unable to fill its police academy classes. He's got to slip that in. And that's the exact same gripe that Mark GED. Let me say it again slow. That's the exact same gripe that Mark GED Furman had. We're letting in all these incompetent, unqualified minorities and dark people and women ah i can't stand it what's going wrong with the department the world's going to hell in a handbag oj simpson johnny cochran ah that's the exact same thing he was saying oh randy sullivan he's mad too we got to get this affirmative action out of here got these old and again the champions of affirmative action white women white men next he says the vice president of the PPL stated publicly that the entire Rampart scandal was the result of Chief Park's determination to protect black officers, an assertion that would have been unthinkable a year later. That seems to be a major theme of this book. Black villains, Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Bernard Parks, former chief Johnny Cochran, all these black people just bending over backwards. Black politicians to hide and conceal who killed Biggie Smalls and Tupac Shakur. No count uh, gangbanger Kevin Gangs. We got all these no count black politicians just lying. They don't care about black people. Mm-hmm. And and in the midst of all this, white people are powerful, pow- excuse me, powerless to do anything about the likes of Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Johnny Cochran and Bernard Parks. They just can't do anything about it. Negroes just ran wild through the 90s. He says the PPL's leadership had been warning for months that closing the LAPD's crash units would leave gangbangers. There's my wording, and I say it's niggers every time. He says gangbanger, niggers. 
uh, leave niggers feeling they've been given a green light to go back to terrorize people. That's the one, one of the few times he used that word in this book is just black people mistreating other black people, not the system of white supremacy. Uh, let's see. And enforcement officers, they know they can get this both ways. We, Mark Furman at all, we as race soldiers can come in and terrorize you or we, we can be totally absent. Let you all terrorize yourself. We brain trashed you. You got all that anti-blackness, no resources. Psh, let you all kill, kill each other. And maybe we'll bring in body bags later on. Maybe we won't. Take your pick. Talked about that on the program before, too. Let's see. They're afraid. I've never or I cannot. I'll at least say it this way for now. I cannot remember a book where we have so many times a white author insisting that white people are afraid of a black person. He says they are afraid of Johnny Cochran will defend whoever is charged and will have another O.J. Simpson. Again, you wouldn't have an O.J. Simpson. Johnny Cochran wouldn't have had anything to work with if police officers weren't lying and practicing racism. If they had done professional police work, maybe it would have been a different case. That all gets, you know, we just ignore all that and chalk this up to corrupt lying Negroes. And we're afraid of them. Hmm. Let's see. Yeah, all this somebody in jail told me such and such and somebody in jail to I'm appalled. I can for this to be a bestseller. And like when I hear about it, the first words out of people's mouth is I cannot believe that trash. It's not worth toilet paper. It's not substantiated. There's no evidence to support things. He's just hearsay from snitches and jailhouse informants and agent provocateurs. Are you serious? Why would Forrest Whitaker even agree to be in a project like that? Are you serious? I won an Academy Award. Get out of here. I'm not putting my name on this trash. That's how effective the system of white supremacy is. Let's see. Mm-mm-mm. And he's just stacking them up. The story, the story, even that word, I said that before. He doesn't say the report. That's a huge difference. Just the, uh, what Henry in Chicago said, the last book we read, he's not saying Julio Butler uh, said such and such. He's saying the trial transcript Butler was asked this under oath and this is his response. That is substantially different than saying this is Butler's testimony as opposed to saying this is Kevin Hackey's story. Sometimes they will use the word story euphemistically to mean lie. This is Hackey's fabrication. So I have no idea. I mean, this is just whatever he told you during your visitation at the prison. Okay, I take that for whatever it's worth. Uh -uh. I mean, all this, you got somebody saying another jailhouse informant. He says Knight opened the trunk of his car, removed an envelope stuffed with hundred dollar bills and handed it to Perez who then handed it to him. His job, Holland said, was to fly to Arizona to hand his money over to a Phoenix cop who eventually obtained the weapon used in the hit on Smalls. The story sounds fantastic, I realize, says Highland Santa Monica attorney W. Ronald Siebold, but Mr. Highland tells it very convincingly. Now that even, he tells it convincingly. 
Uh-huh. Has he practiced it? Has he had some coaching? Directing even to tell it convincingly. Uh, while both the LAPD and Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office dismissed Highland's allegations, the FBI had interviewed him on four separate occasions. He both said Highland failed an FBI lie detector test. That's not admissible in court, but it doesn't sound good. Uh, in March 2001, uh, let's see, but a subsequent investigation turned up flight manifests and hotel records that showed the man had traveled to Phoenix on the dates he claimed. Now, the thing with that would be, who was he with? He could have gone to Phoenix by himself or with any other of the millions of people on the planet. Did he have this meeting and go meet this cop and have all this money, all of that, the claim? Or did he just go to Phoenix? I've been to Phoenix. Kind of hot. Let's see. And he keeps saying this, Darden, uh, Nino Darden. He's like, he's, he can't testify. Get Shook Knight. Shook Knight will kill him. Who is this black person who is just allowed to go out and kill and maim with impunity, even if he's in greater confinement? And if that is true, that all black people at least should walk in fear of Suge Knight, why is that? Why don't white people do something about this fellow? Or why didn't white people do something about this fellow at the height of his heyday? white people most to blame if all that is true and then they continue with the Amir uh, Muhammad I never got a clarification that this guy was in the nation of Islam or was even a Muslim Seth talked about all that before that they say he's uh, got a bow tie they come and they say that uh, deals description of the nation of Islam guy did he say he was in the nation of Islam they continue with all that they say the Muslim looking fellow I don't even know what that means did he have on a hijab the Muslim looking fellow I'm going to put that down as racism, white supremacy as well, because I'm sure if this was just a white person in a suit with a bow tie, it would not be the Muslim looking fellow. He better have on like a hijab, turb, all of that. If it's going to be uh, a white person and we're going to say the Muslim looking fellow. Put that up there with gangbanger, Muslim looking fella, nation of Islam, all of that all means the same thing. Criminal black person. Uh, let's see. Peanut hair, even that's another one. I'm kind of eh, George Washington carved. Uh, eh. After looking, deal explained the Muslim, and they just using it. That's how we're going to describe him: the Muslim, the Nation of Islam guy, the Muslim-looking guy. Like what? I ain't walked away, and we still don't have any evidence. You don't have a fingerprint. You don't have a surveillance footage nothing DNA evidence nothing Muslim looking guys there when this happened boop, that's the shooter peanut head guy was in the car where the trigger was pulled oh, that's that nation of Islam fella let's see Yeah, I thought that was a great point as well. Henry in Chicago made about what Mrs. Wallace actually said. Now, I don't know where he's quoting from. And I don't know, like, because sometimes you'll talk for maybe five minutes and they'll quote one sentence that you said, right? She might have had a lot more to say, but he didn't take any quotes from her ruminating on the fact that only black people are going to be charged in this. 
he just highlights that because that's basically the theme of his book. He wrote it down. I even put it, I went back to go back and check. He says, you can't tell a story in which the good guy is a white detective and all the villains are black. That right there is the theme for this book. That's what it's all about. We got grand old hardworking, full of integrity, Russell Poole and these no count scurrilous racist no integrity having Bernard Parks Johnny Cochran and Congresswoman Waters and we still got that O.J. Simpson running around and Rodney King and Kevin Gaines and David Mack and Rafael Perez and Suge Knight and uh, Sean Connor just goes on and on and on and on on. all of the black people mostly black males but Congresswoman Waters is in there too are no count and scurrilous and messed up everything in the 1990s let's see They asked the grade chief parks. I thought that was interesting because generally you get grades and report because he used the term report card. I know you can be graded. Your performance can be evaluated in many places, but you generally they don't call that a report card. That's generally reserved for children. You get graded in college, but you don't get a report card. You get graded in grad school. You don't get a report card. Children get report cards. Chief Parks. Uh, let's see. And they say, by far and away, this is the most negative report card ever given to the Los Angeles police chief by those who serve under him. Of course, the worst chief we've ever had couldn't be the racists who had Klan members and terrorists on LAPD and shaking down people and all that. That's no, 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 no. The nigger chief is the worst of all time, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, let's see. Racial, and he goes right from that to very next paragraph racial politics whatever that means continue to be the chief impediment to criminal investigations involving rap labels now even that Henry in Chicago talked about it was do you all remember the scourge in the 1990s of black people forming rap labels so that they could go out and commit crimes and mischief under cover of music entertainment do you all remember that I don't remember that it, I remember the exact opposite. Like you want to draw attention all kinds from enforcement officers and white people pick up a microphone like whoa, that is the last place you want to be seen involved with. If you are a criminal element like Diddy, get the hell away from me. All of y'all like you got officers following you in your trunk right now. All of you get out of my yard. Don't talk to me. I don't even listen to rap music going to the Frank Frank Sinatra concert right now. I like classical. They don't have shootouts there. Let's see. Racial politics. <laughs> they said in Texas, a federal drug investigation focused on the Houston label rap a lot and its owner, James Prince, was frozen after Representative Maxine Waters, there she is again, sent a letter to Attorney General Janet Reno requesting that she intervene on behalf of an African-American entrepreneur who had been harassed and intimidated by the Drug Enforcement Agency. Now, this is quoted. Where is this letter? That's another one. Where, let me read the whole letter. All of it. I'd like way more context. Like, how does she know these people? Like, Everything. Give me all the even if she, especially she's gonna show up in person. 
you're going to have to give me a lot more than this uh, to just give me one fly-by sentence that I'm supposed to take your word for the rest of it. Let's see. He gives P. Diddy. Now, on the one hand, he said Diddy's no gangster. He's just making all this stuff up so he can sound menacing. And that's Biggie Smalls, too. He's not a gangster or criminal. And he cried in jail. And then they come back on the other end and said, ah, see, he's a no-count criminal. He's uh, gotten all these different uh, incidents where he's been a gangster and a thug. And he just keeps getting away with all these crimes and all the rest of it. I'm not saying uh, Diddy is a perfect person at all. I am saying in a system of racism, white supremacy, you're a black person. Then particularly you're a black person. You have some money with the call uppity. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Might attract a lot of attention. Could cause you some problems. Anywho, let's see. Um, and I'm sure Diddy would probably do some things differently knowing what he knows now. He was a, And the same thing I said with Maurice Claret at the beginning. All this is happening when all these people, for the most part, are very young. Uh, Snoop Dogg, Diddy, Biggie, Tupac. Uh, most of the people that are being talked about here in their like early 20s. Uh, brain computer not fully functioning. Probably couldn't even at the time rent a car legally in their name uh, because they're so young. So that is huge to keep in mind in terms of victims being confused in general. These, these are very, very young, impressionable, as Maurice Claret said, uh, victims of racism, white supremacy. Back to that end, too, when we're thinking about what type of criminal masterminds all of these folks are at 22 and 24. Really? Let's see. He says Puffy was released on his promise to appear later in D.C. courtroom, but he never did, and the charges were mysteriously dropped. Charges don't get dropped against white people all the time, especially if they have funds. It's not like you didn't shoot somebody, you didn't kill somebody, there wasn't a major injury or what have you, not a major theft, destruction of property, even sometimes when they do have all that. What's my man Jeffrey Epstein? White people with a few nickels, they know how to get rid of a charge. Let's see. I just talked about Lisa Left Eye Lopez. Bless the dead. Oh my God. He has so many. This is one that I mean in my view. There's so many points of anti-blackness in this book. When he said Notorious B.I.G. Uh, looks like something out of a minstrel show. In my, in my view, him just calling Biggie Smalls and calling Suge Knight by his first name like... That's not what white people do when they journalists write serious books. Last name. I don't know any of these people. Suge Knight is not my friend. Knight. Mr. Knight. Knight. They know how to write professionally. He doesn't even do that. But his veiled contempt for black people. He says uh, Valetta Wallace said the organization's goal was to make B.I.G. an acronym for books instead of guns. Well, let me give you the whole paragraph. We can do it all. The, uh, the same month that Suge was released from prison. Phoenix Shakur showed up in Georgia to attend groundbreaking ceremonies for the Tupac Amaru Center for the Arts scheduled to open in March of 2003 with a studio space for the performing arts and a gallery for who gallery whose first showing 
would be of paintings and drawings sent to Afini by fans of her son's music. An adjacent garden was to commemorate Tupac and other victims of gun violence. The Christopher Wallace Memorial Foundation, meanwhile, already had been operating for almost four years as a distributor of scholarships and grants to deserving students from inner city schools. Violetta Wallace said the organization's goal was to make B.I.G. an acronym for books instead of guns. One had to wonder if either mother had ever listened to her son's records. That's what I mean about this. <laughs> this guy is a total disgrace, suspected race soldier in every sense. It's not even quality writing. If you just want to write a book to purge all of your anti-black white supremacist views and talk about how dumb ignorant gangbanger niggers are mission accomplished got it I don't hear people it doesn't seem that most of the non-white people who read this book that's not their takeaway even a line like this Violetta Wallace said I listened to my son's music the nonsense that he talked about she used pretty strong language she said hey this is entertainment he is making this nonsense up He's able to do this well and sell records, but it's got all that filth and profanity. She had listened. She said, oh, yeah, I've listened to what he was talking about, but this is not my child. She was an educator, by the way, I believe, unless I'm misinformed. She was an educator. What would it be? Would it be better if she had a foundation that was bees and hoes and pimps up and all the rest of it? That would be better, right? That would be something to applaud. It can't just be, oh, she put this foundation together and is striving, hoping to take her son's memory forward and inspire young children to read. Nah, 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 nah. Tupac Shakur, uh, his mother, Afini Shakur, Dr. Afini Shakur Davis, the late, passed away in 2016. I think she had listened to her son's music. Maybe she had Dear Mama. Maybe she had heard keep your head up I'm sure she was aware not every song he did was constructive name calling anti-blackness all the rest of it but I'm sure she was aware why can't it be maybe we're not going to try and emulate every single thing that he did but let's strive for the best hey he was into the arts he was an actor maybe let's try and pick out the best and have young children strive for that nah 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 same thing would it have been better if a Phoenix Shakur, she'd opened up some kind of studio and bees this and gangsters this and crips and blood, that would have been cool, right? It would have been okay then, Randall Sullivan. Very thinly veiled contempt for black people throughout this book. And it's just little lines like that. Psh, let me know everything I need to know about Randall Sullivan. Let's see. Anything else? Might be it. Might be it. Other folks have commentary that they want to make. Incidentally, uh, this fella has a second book called Dead Wrong uh, that was published more recently. I cannot imagine anybody sitting down to read uh, another 15 chapters of this nonsense with more unsubstantiated claims. And now it's been 20 years, so people's memory is bad and people have died and all the rest of it over all that time uh, for him to come back and write more where he had no substanti nothing substantiated. Maybe he's going to say, oh, I, I talked to some additional people and found some extra evidence uh, over the past 20 years to write a whole nother book about all this, but he does have dead wrong. Oh, and the other, one other, make sure I get it. Uh, he talked about the officers being upset with Chief Parks 
because he wouldn't allow them to wear the American flag pins after 9-11. I checked. There's a report, the Berkeley Daily Planet. It, it reads, the report is titled, Union Unhappy with Limits on Flag Pins LAPD Officers Wear. It says, uh, recently, Deputy Chief Michael J. Bostic, it doesn't say, Chief Bernard Parks, it says Deputy Chief Michael J. Bostic, who runs the Los Angeles Police Department's Human Resources Bureau, reminded them only one flag lapel pin is allowed on their uniforms. It is the one containing the Dare America flag, which also promotes the department's anti-drug program, Bostic said in a memo issued at the end of last month. A couple of officers have been making waves about it, saying the policy has stifled their ability to display their patriotism. Lieutenant Horace Frank, a spokes, a police spokesman, said Monday, nothing could be further from the truth. Frank added, saying the department encourages displays of patriotism, but with the caveat that our officers be uniform in their appearance. He noted that police officials have also approved an American flag decal for patrol cars and other department vehicles. Uh, I will stop there. Uh, but again, this was not Chief Parks who was coming out and saying no pens and all the rest. And this was just uniform enforcement of policy and procedure, like literally and figuratively. Like you have a police uniform. That was what they talked about, right? The Parker Center and all that. Like, let's be professional. Let's be uniform. So all of our officers look standard, not having some person come in. He's got five, six different pins around his badge and all the rest of this stuff. Like, hey, 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 calm all of that down. Let's go out and make sure that we all are standard in how we look, how we respond uh, and conduct ourselves as enforcement officials. We have a uniform policy. Let's abide by it or we can discuss the democratic way to make changes. I'm all about sticking to policy and procedure for uniform policy and procedure says no pens. Same way that I feel. Hey, you all have heard me black lives matter and all the rest of it. Leave that at home. Workplace is not the time for all of that. If you want to wear pins and decals and all that stuff, get on your day off and do it up. Wear 50 pins. Anything else folks need to make sure they get in number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred code five six four nine four three pound uh all done with Tupac Shakur Randall Sullivan's labyrinth uh, any other final thoughts comments folks want to make sure they get in before we uh push off to a new book next week. Soon, folks are all good. I'll uh, give like maybe three minutes or so just to double check, make sure everyone is satisfied before we push off. Folks can definitely let me know, as I said, my view, uh, even lots of the victims of racism, either who followed this case or people who may have had some like periphery involvement uh, with some of the folks who were involved in this case or whatever it may be. Uh, like I said, that's that's a whole industry like there is uh, prestige at some level for folks just being able to say like, oh, yeah, I was there. You know, when they say you don't even have to know anybody per se, <laughs> like I was there when some portion of these events took place or I was in Vegas or I was in Atlanta when this happened or I was in New York when he was shot the first time or whatever. Uh, and then just being able to go out and recount that and give different details or you can be, you know, in a documentary or what have you like 
most of it seems to be based on very shoddy hearsay. There doesn't seem to be much like evidence, at least that's you know been presented that we are aware of to connect this to anyone. Uh, and again, my view in those types of situations, particularly where you have major like public shootings of really public figures who were under police surveillance and FBI surveillance. Like, wow, that I mean, to me, that is impossible. If you're under surveillance, you got all these folks right there like Johnny on the spot for every. I mean, this should be the very definition of textbook police investigation from arrest to conviction like bam we got the enforcement agencies right here rope off the scene we're going to have pristine evidence pristine prints pristine everything photographs witness statements and all that and much like OJ Simpson that is not the case those type of things happen it makes me wonder maybe that's what they wanted to happen we started with David Kenner Maybe this is what they wanted to happen. My man, David Kenner, seems he is accustomed to all kinds of criminal mobster situations. He doesn't refer to David Kenner as a gangbanger. See there, he said he had ties to let me go back and see if I can find exactly the way he phrased it with David Kenner. But it wasn't. He had ties to gangbangers. It was he had ties to see if I can get his name doesn't even come up enough in the book for me to be able to get uh, the quote from that let's see if I can find that that'll be one of our last ones let's see Uh, 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 uh. all right so one he says Yes, David Kenner was the brains of the company talking about Death Row Records. Hackey said, and it was common knowledge at Death Row, that the attorney provided connections to the organized crime families back east. You can call them gangbangers. See, that's what I mean. That's another one where I said when Randall Sullivan, throughout this text, when he's been saying gangbangers, he means niggers. It means black people. He doesn't just mean mob members or someone who's a gang or is uh, involved in some sort of criminal operation because it's white people who they are organized crime families. Now see the difference in that? An organized crime family. Not just some nigger shooters, gangbangers. I see you, Randall Sullivan. I see you. Words are important because he could have called them gangbangers, right? Unless it's a di- is there a difference? Maybe it's a difference. It's not the same thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe gangbangers, they don't do the same things as organized crime families. I could be wrong. Uh, Everybody good? Before we get ready, as I said, we only have our one audio segment this week. We are all done with Randall Sullivan. We'll pick up next week either with Shaft or the autobiography of Woody Allen. I'm excited either way. If you really press me on it, I would rather that we were starting with Shaft uh, for next week, but that would have to be, you know, have to have a listener. Yes, I'm willing to sacrifice some of my summer to do some narrating uh, for Earl Tidyman's shaft. If we don't have anyone who wants to sacrifice their August, I get it. We'll push off for Woody Allen. Already has an audio book and he's narrating it. So that's, hey, win-win. Love it. Uh, everybody good? Anything else they need to get in? Soon folks are 
Satisfied, Randall Sullivan's Labyrinth, City of Lies, all of even Forrest Whitaker like reading this like man, if I'm Forrest Whitaker, I read this. Call Biggie City look like it's in a minstrel show, and all the rest like hmm. He said this 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 is a story about black villains and one white hero like hmm. Maybe he didn't read the book. And he's a victim of white supremacy racism, if you caught me. Much like Jeffrey Tubin, if you had, maybe if I had read this book before I knew about white supremacy racism, maybe I would have been fooled too. Like, man, that, that Suge Knight he is a dangerous fellow. Like, look at the cut of his jowl. Like, mm, I don't know. Maybe he did kill, kill all those people. Mm. <laughs> I think I would have thought that way. And, and, and Diddy, I mean, who has a name like that? Diddy. He sounds like a criminal gangbanger. That's what it is. He sounds like a gangbanger. He did it for sure. Yeah. They put that song out. Who shot you? That's what criminals do. Make a song and brag about killing another black person. Who would have got me, man? I guess <laughs> I'll get our caller before I get, get him out of there. Person who dialed in one one five nine. One one five nine should be with us as well. Wait until the last minute to get their closing thoughts in uh, on the text. One one five nine. Uh, great greetings, um, guys, and callers and listeners. Um, technical difficulties. Um, unfortunately, I missed um, the last segment of the audio, um, but I'm able to hear um, what you're saying. And um, the book definitely um, the 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 race. The, I want to call him a race soldier who wrote this book. Um, he definitely used a, a lot of um, code words and game bangers being one of the most prominent ones. And I'm like, it's stuff like this, the overt racism um, hidden in, in these words that um, non-white people need to be um, aware of. And um, it, it just makes me know that I'm definitely on the white, in the right direction because um, I'm going to be um, reading um, Race Code War pretty soon with, with a couple of um victims of racism because we should know all the all their code words and how to decipher their racist messages um very very um telling book um i thought it was going to be um constructive when we first first started but um that was um not the case at all i'm in my line thank you not the case at all he said mm, 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 mm. I don't remember if I thought it was going to be constructive or enjoyable because I hadn't seen the movie at the time, City of Lies, and I didn't, you know, know. I just knew John, it had been referenced. That's what I knew. It was referenced often, some people saying that, oh, man, LAPD was involved in the shooting and blah, 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 but I didn't, wouldn't hear anymore. I would even be interested in hearing, like, John Patash, like, what do you make of Randall Sullivan? Does this guy sound like somebody who cares about black people? What do you make of that line where, you know, like the one I read where talking about Valletta Wallace, Dr. Afini Shakur Davis, they're trying to do the best they can to honor their murdered children. He's trying to do this constructive centers and scholarships like they haven't even read their nigger children were talking about. Like that sort of thing, like, man. That was what I was going to say before he got our caller in California, just. I don't know. It might be beginning to accurately understand racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works, and the monumental importance of words. That makes a huge difference in your reading comprehension, in my opinion. Not a reading teacher, English teacher, 
can't spell, said that before. But just looking at myself and others, I think when you, yes, race soldiers, they do all the, the lynchings and blah, 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 and all the rest, make sure we don't have sidewalks, but their major work is with words. Deception with words. Really paying attention to that as you read, because that's just all words when you're reading. That's their tools. Gangbanger. Those are the tools. Muslim looking fellow. Those are the tools right there. No footnotes. Those are the tools. That's deception. You just make claims and don't have any evidence to support. You just got to take my word for it. Having a better understanding of racism, white supremacy, I think it improves your reading comprehension. I don't have data to support that. Just my theory. I could be totally wrong. And I don't think this would show up on a standardized test. But I think you will get a much truer sense of the author, especially if it's someone classified as white. The more accurate your understanding of white supremacy racism is. We will conclude there. So we'll see if we have any uh, listeners feel, hey, I have some free time and have a great voice. Willing to do some professional narrating to read Shaft in the 50 year anniversary of the Shaft franchise. Uh, Grand, we can knock that down. You'd have to have it read, be ready to roll by like next Wednesday because I like to have the material early so I don't have to wait till the last minute to edit and be ready to broadcast. But we can email about all that. If folks are enjoying their summer, don't have free time, the will or the ability to do any narrating, we will read Woody Allen, White Child Rapist. Either way, I am satisfied. Much obliged for uh, folks tuning in. Dark Alliance, I guess, if you want to continue with this thing that we've been on since this started with O.J. Simpson. Whew. What a series. Uh, Dark Alliance would be a good uh, follow-up read. Dead Wrong, I would say, Steer Cove. That's by Randall Sullivan, too. Uh, also, if there's uh, a book on Rodney King, because that is the one we are missing from all of this, that we maybe should have started with Rodney King, or maybe we should come back after we get a little time to break from this and go back and get a really good study of the L.A. riots, Rodney King, Latasha Harlins, take all of that uh, to fit in with this series, but it has been a hoot. Jeffrey Tubin, the run of his life, Jack Olson, Last Man Standing, Randall Sullivan, a labyrinth. Different books, different periods of time, all culminating in the late 90s. Very interesting series of reading uh, on the cow's 1990s LA that will wrap us for this week hope it has been a constructive investment of folks time and energy for their Thursday evening we'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism same time 8pm eastern 5pm pacific vaccine mandates my goodness President Biden talking about vaccine mandates for federal employees Uh, New York talking about uh, vaccine mandates for state employees like wow Lots to talk about. It could be a very different work environment in about 60 days uh, once we get to autumn officially. But that will be for tomorrow, neutralizing workplace racism. Sobriety would be best. A lot of the events and things that were talked about in the book this weekend for the duration, uh, narcotics trafficking and people being under the influence and all the rest of it. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. In addition to being sober, I would say be very alert if you're going out and about this summer. It has been very dangerous, Uh, really, especially in the U.S. We have so many gun owners and 
all the rest of it. Be very alert if you're out and about in public. This is not the time to confront strangers randomly in public. You should be thinking this person may be armed. Am I ready to die right now? In fact, this person may have an entire entourage with them armed, ready to kill. If you didn't leave your residence, prepare to kill and or die. Exit. People are, many people are not very stable right now. Not doing well with all the stress of the past 18 months or so. uh, And they're armed. Beware. Uh, If you go out and are driving, you're not on the cell phone doing the small things we can to minimize contact with the Mark Furman's of the known universe and we need all of our attention be alert that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately if it's one thing we can take from this text no name calling so much nonsense white people exploit that so efficiently conflict between non-white people easy one that we can commit to no name calling no gossiping I am not participating in violence harming another non-white person very easy things that we can all commit to if we are serious about replacing white supremacy with justice immediately Cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim brother a victim I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.